Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? together I uh yeah I woke up with this really interesting idea um that I wanted to run by you which was because I was really tired when I woke up and I thought okay everyone's tired when they wake up and then I thought well and they always say like Americans you know never get enough sleep we're always tired but like nobody ever investigates why really why that is that our system is really fucked up so like I don't know I just was like yeah we always do all these like exposés on like sleep or wellness right like americans are the fattest and the most unhealthy and i'm only speaking about americans because that's where we live i don't know shit about madrid you know i'm sure they they have their own plethora of fucking problems but i'm just saying like we don't actually do the work to like figure out what is wrong we're just like americans are this americans are that mm-hmm. like nobody's getting enough sleep and like there's all these you know sort of headlines right and we're not just like well, why is nobody getting enough sleep? Like, what is actually happening? So that was my grand thought upon waking up was like, yeah, like, I don't know. We just never dig deep in this. Country. We're not big on digging deep. You <laughs> no, know we're I mean? definitely not. Um, so, we're definitely yeah. not. I mean, I, I think our lifestyle overall is pretty unhealthy and it's because of our economic model. Well, that's what I was going to say. It all boils down to, see, the thing is, the more you talk to people, the more I do, the angrier I get, especially like in my office, like slash co-working, like I gravitate towards the ladies and a lot of ladies of color. And we end up sitting around talking about how like capitalism and systematic racism and, and sexism are all tied together and how, and by the end, we're just so angry. We're like, okay, what can we do? And we're like, okay, well, we need to stop putting money in the pockets of this old white man who owns the co-working, but like we have nowhere else to go. So we're like, now we're screwed. So anyway, it's interesting. It's like it all, every conversation I have of meaning with you or with my cousin, and it all boils down to the same thing. And then you end up thinking, I end up thinking like really the only way is mass extinction and starting over with a new species. Fresh slate. Yeah. Or or a revolution, right. Or some kind of bloody revolution. It's going to be bloody because you know, the, 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 people in power aren't going to let go as we see. So like, we're not, it's not good is all I'm saying, but I don't feel necessarily like, and maybe it's because I took MDMA, but like, I don't necessarily feel terrible about it. I feel just like, Oh yeah. Like we're, we're headed towards this way unless something drastic happens. And I'm not sure that's a terrible thing. Now I don't have children, so I might feel totally different about my children and my children's children and their children. But I just, don't that's not my frame of mind so anyway that's what i was thinking as i I was so tired waking up is there any world in which you and the other women in co-working can um just put your just rent and that's what we're doing so we're starting to organize to like be like okay you know like who would want to go in on a lease you know but the thing is it's so interesting it's like well maybe it's la but it's also the world like people don't really trust like we don't really know each other that well yet so we'd have to like do credit checks and thank god my credit is good thank god now it was terrible um but 
all this to say is that like also LA is so transitory that people are like in and out and like, like you know travel it's just so it's such a weird existence but we are talking and there's a guy a black dude who's also like my financial guru guy who like who works at co-working i met here he's a mortgage guy and he's just been like talking to me all about fucking crypto bros and like how the crypto bros are like he's like it is insane now gina did you know now i'm just learning about this world and he's like it's all make-believe basically we live in the matrix and that fucking there is something called virtual real estate did you know this Okay, you can purchase virtual squares of real estate, like Snoop Dogg's house, like, like, and people are doing it. And the For, people who are, why? it's like a status thing and it's expensive. And the people who are becoming billionaires are the people who run the apps, right? Are the people who created the fucking program. We are in the matrix. And I was like, wait, what? And he showed me the site where you can buy any town. If you looked in your town, people are doing it. It It, it is, it, it is consumerism mixed with, uh, people are buying things that don't exist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I feel like this is what happens when people with unchecked power and privilege are like, okay, well, like, literally, we're just making it up. Let's just have cotton candy be our furniture now. Like, it's so I tried to get into Bitcoin. Oh, yeah. Like, about five years ago. Um, Somebody that I went to high school with is rich from Bitcoin. And, and, she was like one of the founders of one of these companies. Sure. And she, so the first problem I have is you shouldn't invest in anything that you don't understand. Right. So I tried to read about it and I'm just like, but what I just kept reading and being like, yeah, but what is it? Right. <laughs> you know, what's an NFT? Oh I mean, my God. Still- the NFTs. Oh my God. And Lam- his name is Lamont. And I love him. And he was trying to teach me about those. And I was like, Lamont, I have to take some kind of drug to understand what you're saying. I don't. I have, I, you know, I've read articles. I've had people explain it to me. I mean, I think what it is is I do know what it is, but I'm just like, that can't be right. what people are spending. Yeah. It can't be that you're just. Yeah, because we're not stupid people. Like we can understand concepts of things. The thing that got me off of cryptocurrency and nfts and all that is that it's so bad for the environment blockchain the amount of energy that's required to um, power blockchain is just just it's like so destructive okay so this leads me to so lamont was like you know what's going on in the co-working room storage room and i'm like what and of course me i'm like are there is there like a torture chamber that's like a dead body isn't there yeah he's like no He's like, one of the side businesses of the CEO of this place is to host these crypto machines that, that okay. it's like credit card terminals, but for crypto. And so yeah. all the, all the crypto um, exchanges that go on need checks and balances. God, he's such a good teacher. He actually explained it to me. He's like, look, you, when you do a crypto exchange with somebody that has to be checked or else how do you know you're actually getting shit, which is all like theoretical anyway but he's like so then you have to create these machines that check the other machines and those are some of those and you get paid it's just like having credit card terminals right it's like selling credit card you know people that sell credit card terminals like they make money off the 
the things, the exchanges, the the transactions, right? Transaction yeah. fees. It's like 10, 10 cents of whatever or something, four cents. So we got machines in the fucking co-working that have nothing to do with co-working. And I re- one day it was hotter than fuck over here. Uh, they uh-huh, take a yeah. lot of energy. And yeah, Lamont, yeah. Lamont goes to the guy, the crypto bro, who's also the CEO of this co-working space, who really wants to just be the crypto bro. He's like, listen, bro, like something's going to melt down. You got to have something to cool these machines. I mean, it's a fucking disaster waiting <laughs> to happen. We're all going to burn up because this motherfucker wants to do crypto. He's not even do. He's just doing the terminals. They're called terminals. I said, no wonder my motherfucking internet doesn't work. How much juice do these motherfuckers take? I got pissed. I got, Lamont and I got pissed. I said, and Lamont was so funny. He goes, yeah, yeah, I don't mind all this like virtual crypto shit, but I need some actual motherfucking green tea up in here. You haven't had green tea up in here for days. This is what I'm going to say. This is what I'm going to say. Like when all of this when all of this starts swirling in my head and it's all (laughs) overwhelming i just go oh like okay but that's not for me like this whole ether world that's cotton candy furniture like that's not for me i have to stick with what i know i like go stick with your uh with with what's in your your metier what's in your wheelhouse that's what she taught us Catherine taught us that right no it was uh Catherine Scarborough. Oh, Josh. No, it was Josh. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was talking about his, oh, right, his, right. his the pro- programs are called met- the, the, your oh, concentration yeah. is called your mentee. Anyway, like in the same way that, you know, people create art that other people criticize right. and then you say, well, it's not for you. Like, I just know that none of that is for me. So, you know, because here's the thing we, Aaron and I have had near misses on like a bunch of bubbles, right? We lived in California. We lived in the Bay Area during the what they what used to call the dot com boom, yeah. and all of our friends had these hundred thousand dollar year jobs and worked at Google and places and got Friday night beer yeah. parties and lunch catered whatever every single day, and we were just like, oh my god, we're so dumb. We we can't. We don't know how to work in tech. We don't. You know, we can't get, <laughs> take advantage of this opportunity. Then it was the housing market. In in 2004, it's like, wow, you could get a like we could buy a house. Somebody would give us a mortgage when we have no money and so much debt. We thought we should buy a house. We looked into buying a house. That didn't work out. That turned out to be a good thing. Um, I think the crypto thing is another like I'm not saying it's a bubble, although it probably is because we have to be in a bubble. Um, but I'm saying like. I, I put myself at ease about not being able to really grasp these things by just saying like, Oh, that's not for me. That's not what I'm, that's not what I'm really like here on this planet to, yeah, it, to do. It does interest me. And also, um, yeah, it's so bad for the environment. And also I just don't give a fuck. Also give me my fuck. Oh, and we haven't had creamer up in this bitch for like, and I started, I was like, I don't give a fuck what you do here but i need creamer so if you don't like and they finally got it you bet your ass when lamont and i were like okay green tea we need it and they they got it because we were like fuck you like we're not stupid and then the other thing that i wanted to say about the whole bitcoin oh the minimalist movement that these these kids that are in their 30s are doing okay listen to this this is insane so kids are having um 
and kids. Yeah, they're like 30, right? They're buying Teslas. Okay. But great. They buy a Tesla. Teslas are now equipped with so much shit that you can basically live in it as long as you have a charging. They fucking park their shit in their parents' house. I'm not kidding you. So a lot of them were living with their parents, right? And they were like, well, this fucking sucks. But they're saving all this money, right? Because it's so expensive. So they sock away their money. They buy a Tesla. They park the Tesla in their parents' fucking driveway. And they do experiments where they plug in and then they see if they can live in it. Okay, this is like a real thing. Right. So it has everything you need except a shower and a bed. Or like you, your seats go down. So you, it's actually a, a bed. And a toilet. Shower and a toilet. Okay, then they get so they have a Tesla. They get a, a sink. They get a um they get no they get a gym membership. Okay. So they get a Tesla uh, and a gym membership. And that's all they need. And they fucking don't own shit except cryptocurrency in their Tesla and fucking go around to different cities and there's like all these Airbnb hacks and and rental car hacks that if they travel they travel around the country. Like the guy who is the CEO of this place doesn't live here. He lives kind of in Austin, kind of here. He has a test. It, it is the weirdest thing. Okay. Well, when the Russians uh, send nuclear missiles and we end up having hand-to-hand combat with the Chinese or yeah. whatever, what are these fucking people going to do? Nothing. They don't know how to do anything. No, no nothing. They'll be dead. I mean, not like I dead. know how to do anything. No, no, but, but you and yeah. I are scrappy. Like we could figure it out. They're dead. And that's fine. I, just I mean, always think of, I just always think like people used to hunt, you know, like we, we, we're, if our world is predicated on so much pretend yeah. and like, and like also just like this very thin margin of, well, it's all fine and good until the power grid goes out. It's all fine and good until like suddenly for whatever reason, there is just no internet. Like, or or you know, we get hacked. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's all fine and good until like, Everything that we put our hopes and dreams and faith into just doesn't work one day because that's what happens with machines is they just sometimes they just don't work. And Lamont was saying, and I kind of agree with him that like what he thinks is happening. So frantically, the government is scrambling to get into crypto, right? Frantically, our government is like, we're going to have a fucking stake in this. So what he thinks is going to happen, and I agree with him, is that they're going to figure out a way to sabotage the crypto system and say, we, we now run the crypto system. He's like, I know it's a conspiracy theory kind of thing, but of course it's money. Right. So they're going to say, okay, okay. Like you, you guys are going to get screwed because someone's going to hack you. Let the government take over. We'll run crypto. And then of course, which take, which takes away the main draw of crypto, which is that it's this um, currency that cannot be traced to anything. So the second there's any type of regulation that, that and it's like well, you might as well just be talking about dollars right because right you know it, so that's what they're yeah. gonna do so it's gonna be really interesting to see how this plays out we'll probably be dead but that's okay yeah we'll probably be dead i'm watching this television show called severance oh everybody loves severance wow 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 it's it's whew, it's really something else um but what i love about it is it's kind of hard to explain so i won't try to explain it but there's Suffice it to say, the company that these people work for, the job that they do is they sit at these computer terminals and they there's just a screen full of numbers and they have to put these digits into the correct bins at the bottom Okay, based on their feeling about the numbers. Like 
these numbers are scary and these numbers are happy and these, yeah, it's so weird. Right. When, but when I see them, they're putting the numbers into these little bins in the bottom and I go, God, this is like my daughter's, um, you know, like educational games. She She has to do something like this. Well, it gets to the end of the season and the, they've all, this little department has leveled, there's all this pressure on getting a certain quota by the end of the quarter. And it's, we don't, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. We're not going to make it at the last minute they make it. And what making it looks like for them is that a pixelated cartoon character comes on and says like, basically you leveled up. So really it, I don't know if this is the point that they're trying to make, but it, it really looks like they're just playing a video game. This is insane. I love it. It's, it's insane. It's, it's really, really good. And I and I reached out to all of the actors on there, seeing if anybody wants to be on our show. I got one person who was like, oh, that sounds interesting. Oh she, I'm like, God. is that a yes? And then, I never, <laughs> and then I never heard anything back from her. But yeah, listen, humans are designed to um, work. So when you don't have to literally like grow your own food and cut down your own wood, you have to find something yeah. to do that yeah. feels work workish. Yeah. And and I feel like a lot of our industries are kind of work adjacent. You know, yeah, it's like yeah, of busy course. Work. Busy, work. busy work. And like mm-hmm. and like um a lot of sorting into bins, yeah. A lot of sorting now, into bins. Did you yeah. see fucking bad vegan? No, I was wondering if I should watch it. Okay. Watch it and we'll talk about it. Um, Because, whoa. It is the... Miles was very frustrated with this documentary based on why... Oh, it's a documentary. Oh, I thought it was a... I thought it was a fictional show. Oh, they'll make a fictional show out of it. But it's a documentary about a woman who started a vegan restaurant and so much more in New York City and it comes down to what we always said, and I'll wait till you watch it, but I, it just reinforces what we always talk about, which is if you have an unfulfilled inner need from childhood, that shit will play out. I could trace this, her whole demise, her whole demise, and it's a whole crazy ass fucking story about this woman. Her whole demise comes down to the fact that Alec Baldwin did not pick her to date. Okay, that's it. Okay, I'm completely plausible. I completely understand that. Hey, let me run this by you. My son got this part in a movie. And so the thing I wanted to run by you is I... Uh... Hmm. So many things. I <laughs> I get I get stage moms. Yeah. I understand why stage moms is a thing. When my son started getting into acting, he was five years old. Yeah, he was really young. And my thing was, I don't want to be a stage mom. I don't want to be a stage mom. I don't want to be a stage mom. Which was reinforced by every time I've ever been on set. There's always at least one really out of control stage mom. And I think I told this story in the podcast before. But one time we. We were in, the, uh, he was doing um, Gotham, that show yeah. Gotham. 
and there was like a gaggle of kids uh, in this scene. And this one boy, I was just, you know, whatever. I was striking up a conversation with him and I said, oh, do you, do you really want to be an actor? And he said, no, my father makes me do this. I want to be at school. <laughs> and it was just oh so Oh my god. And I met a lot of kids. This was back when he was doing all just all background right. stuff. I met a lot of that's where you find the most stage moms when the kids are like the the stakes are just couldn't be lower. Right. You know, they're just doing background extra work. Um which is all just to say though, I've had to be in dialogue with myself about what my aspirations are about working in film and television and and my frustrated aspirations. And I, you know, I've had to just be constantly talking to myself about making sure that this is what he wants and not what I want. And and the classic thing that always happens is when he gets an audition, if he doesn't feel like doing it, it, it becomes this thing. And I always say, you don't have to be an actor. You don't have to have an agent. But if you're going to be an actor and you're going to have an agent, you have to do the audition. That's true. And you have to work at it and you have you have to work hard at it. And yes. acting is actually really hard and it takes a lot of work. That we we just kind of overcame this obstacle for the audition for this movie because I made him put in maximum effort. Good. Which usually I don't. Usually I'm just like, well, it's his career, you know, it's his life. If he doesn't want to work on it, why am I gonna spend, you know, my whole time? But I really encouraged him to work on it and he really did, and he did really well. And so now we're waiting to hear you know, whether or not he's gotten it. But the first night that this was a thing, I couldn't sleep. Yeah. I was awake. Like, I mean, part of it is thinking about the logistics, like how will I live in LA for a month when I have two other kids. Right. But the other part of it is just, what is this going to mean for him? What is this going to, what's going to be, what's next and what's next and what's next and what's next. So I've talked a lot of shit about stage moms in the past. And I just want to say, if you're listening to this and you're a stage mom, I get it. I get, I get, you know, because maybe this was your hope and dream, but also maybe just you put a lot of effort into when you're the mom of a kid who wants to do this. It's so much work for the mom or the dad, as the case may be. So much. It's it's scheduling babysitters when you have other kids. Money, it's driving time, into the, it's the whole driving into thing. the city for auditions, paying for headshots every year because oh, yeah. they change so much every year. Um, communicating with doing the cell, I had to learn. This is actually how I learned how to do iMovie. Yeah, because I had to, you know, work learn how to edit his self tapes and stuff like that. So. Um, but have you encountered stage moms? Oh, that's a great question. Um, yes. And I, I feel like I totally understand how moms and dads get and caretakers get to be that way. And I think also to remember for me is that it comes from this genuine, usually place to want to help and protect your kid. And, and also, and then you mix that in with your own aspirations, which I would have too, if I had a child that I was shuttling around. Um, and also, yeah, I, I would encounter that. So I think that I get it. And I also know that like when I worked at casting and at PR and I loved it, but there would occasionally be like 
moms that would bring in their kids or dads, but usually it's moms, right? Of course, um, who bring in their kids that were desperate to get the kid into the face of the casting director. So they'd hang around, they'd want to ingratiate themselves to casting at the audition. They'd come into the office and, and, you know, to their credit of my bosses, PR casting, they were lovely, like they, but, but they also had work to do. So it was like, these kids are just sort of standing there smiling and the mom is like pushing them. And we all, it was very uncomfortable. Um, and it doesn't actually work. Like what works is being professional on set, doing the great job in the room, being a nice kid and being a nice parent, but it just feels like and we know this from being actors. It just feels like you have to like sort of ingratiate and push yourself into the faces of the people with power in order to get anywhere. So then there's like these really uncomfortable moments of like talking yeah. about nothing while we're trying to get work done in the office, especially right. like, right. yeah, they have a lot of work to do. So it was just, it was just very, and you'll see when we go to PR, like it's all glass. So like y- you can see what the casting directors are doing in the office. So uh-huh. you want to be in there because it looks really fun. Right, um, right, right. And actors yeah. who are like, quote, special get to go in there and say hi. Like I'm friends with the, uh, with the casting uh-huh. directors is the, is the idea. I'm not saying I'm like someone is, and then they get to go. It's just like a really weird thing. And it's also, um, it's very hard to navigate and I get it too. We, we, we want to be liked and loved and picked and chosen and mm-hmm. it is a universal thing. I mean, we want the same thing for our kids yeah yeah, yeah totally but totally. i i don't i've had never had anyone that was been bonkers you know mm-hmm. but maybe yeah i never yeah never yeah i mean really their bonkers behavior i think actually probably the kids are the ones who who absorb the brunt of it which is you know and also it's really hard to teach a kid about acting because you're as we've said many times, you're tr- you're trying to figure out how to play a character when you don't even know who you are. I mean, that's really true for a kid. And trying to teach them, it's supposed to be, it's yes, it's pretend, but you're supposed to be sincere and no, you're right. not the character, but yes, you have to be the character. You know, it's, it's just like it's a, it's a lot of mental gymnastics. It's impossible. So. And like, if you don't know how to communicate that, to a kid, mm-hmm. let alone the kid know how to do it. It's a mess. And then you're just, it's just kind of a crapshoot. Like, especially mm-hmm. we would see kids that were two and three years old. Oh, see now that I, I can't. The kid would be like, I, mean, I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I have to go to the bathroom. Well, like, I, I, yeah, some kids are, I mean, it's just, to me, I thought it was amazing, but I also didn't have an agenda on trying to get shit done. Like the directors and the producers and the everyone is trying to get shit done in the room. And I yeah. and the kid doesn't, you know, whatever. The kid is literally three years old. So like I thought it was amazing, but I they that it's it's a nightmare. Yeah. Did I ever tell you the story of when I taught drama to kindergartners? No, I mean I know you did, but I don't know the I had this job at this school called Head Royce in um the Bay Area. Right. I got a job teaching after school drama to kindergartners. It might have been my very first teaching thing. No, but it was early on and, and I hadn't taught. I certainly hadn't taught like my full-time teaching job that I eventually had at a middle school. But not having children and not having taught, I 
thought we were just going to do a play. You know, like oh, I was going to pick a play God. and they were going to memorize their lines. I, I seriously thought, I seriously picked a play. What was it? Do you remember? Was it like fucking, wouldn't it be funny uh, if it was like, you know, uh, Romeo and Juliet, like Steel Magnolias or something like just like totally <laughs> amazing like that? It, it was age appropriate because it, it, it turned out to have whatever it was. I can't remember, but it was also a children's book. Okay. Which I, I oh oh yeah oh sorry I adapted a children's oh, book. Oh, I remember this. Yeah. Oh my god. Okay. And the entire time we were working on it, it never occurred to me that they couldn't memorize their lines. I just kept being like, well, maybe by next week they'll know it. Maybe by next week they'll know it. Until it came time to do the performance, and all the parents came, and I shit you not, it didn't occur to me until all the parents were walking in. Every single one of them had a video camera. This is before cell phones. That, oh my God, they are expecting a show. And I guess I was too. And they don't know. We don't have a show. It's what, not. What happened? There's nothing what, here. what did it look like? Oh my God, this is brilliant. I got to the point. For a while, I was like doing the, I was the narrator, right? And and then they would supposed to be say their lines, but then they would never say their lines. So then Basically, what it amounts to is I just read the entire book. What they do? While the kids just stood there, and in the middle of it, one kid, in the middle of my, and and of course, the more uh, uh, anxious and and terrible I felt, like the more forced and forced cheerfulness yeah. I yes, had in my yes. voice. You know, I was, I, I must have looked crazy. I wish I could see a video too. I bet I looked like a complete lunatic. And in the middle of it, as and I'm also getting louder and yeah, louder because the kids are kind of wrestling around. And this kid's like, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I would love to oh, I'm sure those God. parents erased over taped over those tapes, but I would love to see just frantic me and I'm getting red and I'm sweating. (laughs) Oh my God. By the time it was over, I just went to the headmaster's office and I was like, I did a terrible job. You should never hire me again. This was a complete disaster. And they were like, yeah, maybe this isn't your thing. Today on the podcast, we are talking to Joe Basile. Joe is an actor and a writer and a content creator and a former neo-futurist. He has got it going on and he is lovely and charming and personable and a marketing genius. He has his own company now. He is all that and a bag of chips, as the kids used to say 25 years ago. And I hope you really enjoy our conversation with Joe Basile. so sweet it's so good to see both Hi. of you oh my goodness so yeah. good to see you. what you what you don't have what i remember is big hair oh you have zero hair okay well you're a handsome bald bald man so you can pull oh, it off oh thank you go on go on i will i will i will but i'll start by saying congratulations joe basile you survived theater school 
And I did. Yes, and you survived it with us, mostly with Bodge. You guys are graduated in the same year, I think. Yeah. Yeah. We did. Yeah. Do you remember that year? Well, you were in the same section, Jen. I here's that? what I remember about you. That <laughs> we went to a Halloween party together with my roommate with a non-theater school, like my best friend Sasha, who Gina knows, Sasha and Chrissy. And we went to a freaking Halloween party in the suburbs and you had the best costume ever. It was a robot. And you, you remember any of this? You look. Oh my god, I it don't know. Brilliant. <laughs> it was like I was a robot. Wow. You had like okay. a whole situation, and it was like we had the best time. But it was like we didn't know anybody. It was like in the suburbs. It was my friend's. Did party. he? Did he make the? Yeah, robot? yeah, yeah. It was so all lovely. made. It was so good. Anyway, um, that's what uh, I mean. I remember. That's the main thing that I remember being like, oh my gosh, <laughs> his costume is brilliant. So anyway, I do remember, I mean, I remember, yeah, I mean, remember bits and pieces. I remember that, like, I thought you were, like, super nice and also, um, yeah, that we all just were trying to figure it out. Like, nobody knew what the hell was going on. Yeah, no, I remember when you joined our section, we were so excited that like someone new was going to like join and we all knew of you, but we didn't know yeah. you. And I remember that year you were just like a breath of fresh air. You were just so direct and funny. And, you know, I think at that point we were just getting a little tired and you just brought a lot of really beautiful energy into our sections. So yeah. The other thing I want to say before I forget is that I, when I was doing research on you, like just to catch up on you and stuff, there's other people with your name that, um, that some, some of who are like wild, like one, one guy, like a couple, like therapist couple has Lisa and Joe have your name and, and they are like, uh, infomercial kind of people. Anyway, I just thought it was hilarious. And then there's yeah. another actor. Yes, there's another actor. And what had actually happened one year was uh, I was put in the DePaul, the theater school alumni newsletter that I was on six feet under and all of this stuff. So people started reaching out to me and it was the other oh, Joe Basil. Oh my God, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah. I wonder I like, about those alumni things. So it's just, I mean, I guess you've answered the question. Is somebody scouring the trades or whatever looking for names that they it used recognize. to be john bridges and then i think also people submit themselves which is so i mean i get it but it's also like i don't have time for that i mean like now i don't have time. i mean not that i'm doing anything that fancy but like I, I, I there's something weird about being like hey john bridges um can you put me in the alumni news i don't know i'd rather except be in for except for like you're but that's what it is right that's what you have to do that's what it's all about the network i mean i i haven't ever done it either but i mean i know. did it when i had a solo show because i thought okay in chicago maybe people will come so i i have done it but i i just um yeah for promo i think it might be helpful in some instances but uh. whatever it is what it is. okay so going back to the beginning you're from long yeah. island I am. And you have yep. zero Long Island accent. Was that very intentional? Well, it's so funny you mentioned that because I think that was such a big thing my first year. And it really kind of changed the way I speak because I felt like I was a fast talking, like Long Island kid. 
And my speech really slowed down that first and second year because I was so conscious of it. Um, so that after that first year, I think, you know, yoga, between yoga and all the voice and speech stuff, like I was like standing up straight and talking like standard American, like, you know, whatever that was that we learned. Um, Did you feel like you and, had to do that in your, not when, even when you weren't on stage? I mean, that was, that was the thing. I think back then I didn't really understand the distinction. I felt like I, uh, I had to speak that way on stage and then it just transferred over to my real life also, you know, looking back, I was like, Oh, you know, I wish I would have been able to make the distinction in my real life that I don't have to speak like this, but it's hard to learn something and practice it. Like I couldn't just practice that in class. It would have just been too difficult. But I started speaking a lot slower just because I was really conscious of the awe sounds I was making, like all the sounds. And, um, and I, it was pretty thick. I don't know. I don't know if you all knew me back then, but it was pre- there were some words I had never heard pronounced a certain I way. I don't recall yeah. you as, I mean, yeah. I, I, I was surprised to learn that you were from Long Island in looking mm-hmm. at your history because yeah, mm-hmm. it seemed, it seemed like you had erased it. So uh were you maybe the only person from from new york in your class uh no there were a couple there was ed ryan was also from new york right yeah but he was from scarsdale i think and then i was i might have been the only one from long island um at least in my class that i remember and did you have depaul as your i mean is that was that the school you wanted to go to or was it your safety Oh my God. I was all about NYU. Um, I was all about it. And then even before I went to, um, you know, before I started applying for colleges, my senior year, I went to a summer program at NYU. And at the time there was something called musical theater works conservatory. And I spent a whole summer doing like conservatory training and, you know, to earn college credit and it was such a great program at the time, too, um, because we took classes during the day and in the evening we saw shows and did all this cultural stuff. So after that experience, I, was, I just wanted to go to NYU and I just loved it. I loved the city. Um, and then um, I didn't get in. <laughs> I didn't get in. And then I was deciding between DePaul and Emerson. And I visited both schools. Um, and uh, when I went to visit DePaul, I know you all had uh, Bradley Walker yes. on. And I stayed, he probably doesn't remember this, but I totally stayed with him in the dorms. And the other weird kind of quirky thing I remember was um, I, <laughs> I went to his dorm room and he was um, eating dog food. Like he was eating out of a box. Wait, uh, wait, and, wait, wait, yeah, wait. Wait, yeah, hear me out, hear okay. me out. So he's like, do you want some? And I was like, um, okay, sure. You know, peer pressure. So I ate the dog food, like out of the box. It was like dry dog food. And he's like, yeah, it's just, we like how it tastes and it's cheap. And then like, after he told me it was just like cereal and they just like to eat out of like the, they put the cereal in the, in the dog food box anyway. Oh, like, oh my God. Quirky, quirky things okay, that I remember about that weekend. So here's the thing, like as a 46 year old, tired ass lady i'm like who the fuck has time to be switching foods into different boxes i can barely get my shoes on 18 year olds who are in college i mean it's kind of funny genius it's genius it's a good market like it's a good quirky marketing it reminds me of something they might have done and say 
that movie um, with uh, Janine Garofalo and Ben Stiller, whatever that movie it was that they did about Gen X, whatever. Reality like, Bites? Yes. Reality like bites? it reminds me yeah. of something mm-hmm. like, hey, oh, yeah. let's switch the food into the, but anyway, okay. So <laughs> but was he nice to you? Oh my God. He really sold me on the school and not, he wasn't trying to sell me on the school. He's like, this is where we do this. And he took me on a tour of the theater school and, you know, I loved that it was in an elementary school and I visited in June, which is like a beautiful time to be in Chicago. And I mean, after that experience, I was just completely sold. And I, it was cool. Cause I went by myself. Like my mom just let me just go to all these places to, to visit and like got off the, you know, I took the train, I took the L to the school and everything. And, um, and it was, it was cool. I felt like it was a really good fit. Um, so it, it worked out nicely. Um, you did a bunch of things though, after theater school, you moved back to New York and got mm-hmm. very involved in theater. So tell us about that epoch. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I did a couple of shows in Chicago and, um, I had major FOMO of what was going on in New York and I felt like I was missing out. Um, and I think, you know, I had an audition for a lot of stuff in Chicago and I just didn't, wasn't landing things. And then, you know, when I moved to New York, I wanted to focus more on directing and writing. And uh, I did an intern, I did a couple of internships, but I did one at um, Ensemble Studio Theater. Um, and that was super helpful because as part of the internship, you were in an actor, director, writing lab. And yeah, and it was, I think the first time I had been in a place where you can kind of cross over and do different things. And also that we had a, a, a lab director who really kind of just taught me like how to uh, like give feedback to myself and how to give feedback to others. Like the big thing that she would always ask is like, after we pr- would present some kind of work, she would just say like, what do you need to know in order to move forward with the work? Like what is important to you? And we really, you know, we had a small group and we really experimented within that. And then after the internship, some of us kind of like stuck together and I mean, at the time too, there were, there were a ton of interns. There was like over 20 and they gave us the keys to the theater. And we had like, there were a couple of theaters there. So we would do our shows like on the top floor of, of, um, of the theater there on 52nd street and, you know, hang out after and drink beer. And like, I mean, something that probably is not happening today, but it was, it was a really good, like a good landing for me so just to meet other people how okay so if we take it back a little bit like when you were because yeah. i'm curious about this so like you didn't have fomo about um la right like moving to la when everyone moved to la or did you like when you graduated from depaul and i asked because now you're here obviously in southern california but also because um it sounds like new york to you based on you the summer program you did and stuff was sort of the like in your brain like the utopia mecca for actors but you so you felt a fomo but like showcase wise because i love a good showcase story were you focused on new york like because you did we did we go to no we didn't go to new york but we did no so how how did you make the choice to go not to la like how did that go down yeah, I mean, we took uh, that film class our last year with Gerard. I don't know if you remember him. What the um, actual fuck? Where were? Yeah, we took a film class. Yeah, we all we all Gerard? did. Gerard, yeah, who's with, Gerard? I think that's what his name was. And it's vaguely ringing class, a bell. But- yeah, we took a film class where we did a scene on camera, 
And I, the whole experience was like horrific. Oh, I remember. It was bad for all of us. It was bad for all of us. Yeah. I had like a little breakdown after because I was like, I don't, I just felt very, you know, self-conscious. I mean, we had spent like years doing theater. I never really looked at myself. And then I was not like a theater snob at all. Like I was willing to do anything. I would do voiceover, do film, but I just didn't feel comfortable with the camera at all. And um, I think by my, the last year or two, I really started to get more interested in like experimental theater and performance art. And um, I felt there was more of that in New York at the time, or maybe I was just unaware of it in Chicago. And I wanted to lean in that direction. And that's another reason I kind of went to New York Makes also. Perfect um, sense. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't seeing that as much. Like, I remember there were some companies in Chicago that did some really beautiful pieces, like all the Mary Zimmerman yeah. um, pieces I loved. I was like, ugh, that, like all those were like the Northwestern kids who were in those shows. <laughs> uh, I remember but, when um, Metamorphosis yeah. happened and everyone was like, yes, we all wanted to be yes. in Metamorphosis and none of us got in because she, of course, chose Northwestern kids because that's who she taught and that's where she went, right? And so whatever. Yeah. And I ended up seeing that in New York anyway, when I was there. So it was like anything like that would eventually go to New York too. So, so you, yeah. but, and you did a lot, you worked a lot in New York theater. You worked at Roundabout and you, and you worked for um, the Neo Futurist, which I love that. I mean, I, that show too much light makes the baby go blind, which is now called infinite, infinite wrench. Is that what it's called? Yeah. yeah. I loved that show. Uh, tell me everything about being a part of that. Yeah, you know, at that, I first saw that show in Chicago when I was, like, right outside of, no, I saw it my first year when I was 17, and then um, someone from DePaul had, like, a friend of mine had brought me to it, and I, I loved it, and then kind of forgot about it, and then I auditioned in Chicago for it when I was 21, and I was just not ready for it, and then when I moved to New York, I, I was there for maybe two or three years I discovered that they had had started the show there. And um, I mean, that really kind of shifted so much for me. I, well, for one thing, it was like, it was so great to meet a group of people who were um, passionate about the same thing, like the aesthetic, um, you know, passionate about being an ensemble. And that show is like so challenging and, fun and stressful, <laughs> but also like super rewarding. And also at the same time, you know, it, it kind of changed the dynamic I had as an actor and artist with the audience. Cause it's so rare as an actor that you get to just like be yourself on stage. It's like, yeah, rarely happens at all. So to on a weekly basis, just stand in front of an audience and like be yourself. And then, and then also think about like what you want to say and how you want to say it. And um, you know, like through movement or puppetry or through humor or through earnestness or do something conce conceptual or abstract or, you know, um, and I did some like crazy shit uh -huh. on stage. And, like, like what was your, and some what, was your stuff. what was your favorite? Cause like what I'm noticing and what, as you're talking, what I'm remembering yeah. about you is that, yeah, like literally you, you, my experience of you in, when we knew each other back in the day was that, yeah, you did not. You, you you wanted to sort of um, 
push the envelope and step outside of the bounds of like what we were learning at the theater school. Like you just had an experimental like heart about you. So I guess um, my question is like on stage, what do you remember about too much uh, about um, the neo futurist that like really sticks to you like performance wise? Like what was so special? Like what did you? Uh, so many things. I mean, I think. Um... Well, the craziest thing I did was take a shit on stage with someone. Oh, I heard this. Wait, I think I might have heard about this. Uh, it was actually a very like poignant play about like writing. Uh, it, it was with my mentor who was uh, in the New Futurist, and we had the same name. And we both, the play was actually called Untitled Number Two. And we had this thing in common <laughs> where before we would perform, we would always like have to take a poo. Yeah. So I just wrote this play about that experience. And to me, like, he was, you know, offered me so much advice and so many, um, uh, you know, really kind of mentored me through being a neo-futurist. And so I wrote this play in homage to him and, you know, as a gift in a sense. So at the end, we like produced, we like, we were actually, we pooed in a bucket. And then at some point we, you know, we turned the bucket over and then, which was really hard to do because I had to like hold my poo in all day. And I was like, was not sure what was going to come out at a certain so, moment. Um, but, but I also did other things so, yeah, besides yeah, like but I guess Okay, so what I get from this yeah. is because, okay, so like the ultimate stage fright, I think, is about being a failure for me on stage, like being embarrassed, being shamed, being all the things, right? Like that's what makes me panic on stage, right? So this is an experience where you literally are like showing your insides, like take excrement, like on stage for the sake of art and for the sake of, but like, was it freeing? Yeah. I mean, there was, I will never forget my first run that I did. Um, my good friend, Erica, who I met, during the neo-futurist and who I'm still really good friends with now, she, she said to me, she's like, if you fuck up, you have to let it go because you'll ruin the moment that you're in and the next moment. So there were so many times, I mean, it was, we would learn things like the day before or the day of, and it was inevitable that we were going to fuck up. So all of that perfectionism, you had to kind of leave at the door and, and that moment, I remember sometimes like being on stage and being like, I have a line coming up. I don't even know what that line is. And here you are. And then you just kind of like say whatever comes out of your mouth and it just becomes part of the show. Hmm. So it was really freaky. And for me, who I felt like at school, I was not a perfectionist, but I did do a lot of homework to make things go right. I had to just let go i mean another moment too i we did this like dance number where we had um we had these masks there weren't masks they were like uh plastic plates with smiley yeah. faces on them and uh we didn't get a chance to rehearse the dance number before we went on so i was beat backstage and someone was telling me like what the oh dance my god were, with their like, mouth. A moment before oh my god. <laughs> so i had my glasses on like with this plate pressed against me and I hardly could see. And I was just like, all right, I'm just gonna like follow the person in front of me and just see what happens. And then I think that's on YouTube somewhere of me like- I will link to it in the show notes. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so I'm glad that you started to speak to being a perfectionist in undergrad because it wasn't until you used that word about perfectionism that that rung a bell. Oh yeah, you were 
perfectionist, or or maybe you were just one of these people that you know, like we've talked to before, who took theater school rarely seriously and maybe didn't care for people who didn't. I don't know if that's true about you or not, but how have you wrestled with your perfectionism as a performer and as a writer? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, with school, um, I had like a very different experience my first two years compared to the second two years. I was certainly a big nerd my first two years and um, I wish I had it because I knew this was coming up and I couldn't find it. I think it's at my sister's place someplace, but I have a journal that I kept. I used to write after every acting class and I would write like what happened. And then I'd give myself some like insights and recommendations oh for like gosh! next time. Such a nerdy. I still have it. It's just, I have to find it. And when I do, I'll, I'll, I'll send you. Cause I think I was, it was, I definitely documented everything that happened, like breakdowns, like, oh you know, God. being really angry, being really happy, like all that kind of stuff. The text, this um, is the same Dead Sea Scrolls. We <laughs> well, it also would make like, a this. great coffee table book, like, like, like acting notes from a teenager, like, 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 or like, you know, I don't know. I think it could be really yeah. great, but, and with pictures, yeah. cause you're an artist, like the whole, anyway. I will, I will scan a good journal entry and I'll send it to both of you Please. when I find it. Um, but I think, you know, writing that really helped me, I think thrive the first two years was like the writing aspect of it and reflecting on it. And I think in terms of what I do now, like I need breaks and that's how I handle like dealing with perfectionism. Now I sometimes um, like, I've just kind of started to develop a writing practice the past two years and I know when it's time to stop. And usually it's when I stop, I know I need to like go for a walk and reflect or just let it go. And then like, which is interesting because that's what your friend Erica told you. It's like, you have to, we have to just let it go at a certain point in order to not, because what happens, right, is fear begets fear mm -hmm. begets perfectionism. So on stage, if something goes awry, since we're all artists, we can relate. Like if something goes awry and you stay stuck in the awryness, you really miss out on what's coming next. And also you're destined to fuck up what's coming next. So that letting go for you, it sounds like it's really important in order to move on. Not even not on stage. Like, and so you, you say like writing and walking helps you let go and you realize that like to move on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it's so funny. We were talking about letting go. Cause when I auditioned for the Neos, we had to um, write a play about our biggest challenge. Oh, shit. And to me it was letting go. And I wrote this play. Um, well, we didn't say any words, but we, there was a paper shredder on stage. And then I wrote out like a word or two on a piece of paper and then like put it through the shredder. And then we gave like, we held out pens or markers to the audience and then like the audience could come up and write something and then shred it. And it was like very powerful because like some people would write like, you know, my, um, you know, my ex-boyfriend or like um, Envy or, you know, last season's like fashion collection or whatever it is, you know, that they wanted to let go of. But I think to me, I, that is something that still you know, resonates of like, how, how do I let go? Yeah. You know, like through meditation, through like, um, the walking for me is a meditation. And that's, that's usually like, it's a big part of my process just to, to take the time 
you know, to take the time between creation, I guess. Yeah. What, have, what have you learned that you've had to let go in terms of <clears throat> how you saw yourself as an artist when you started school versus when you came out? Like in the time that you've been able to reflect, what, what, I mean, cause we, we had lots of ideas about our spas and I had lots of ideas about ourselves and who we were as artists and who we were as people. And most of those were all completely, completely wrong. So, so this podcast has been a process of letting go of some of those antiquated oh, ideas, time. but what's it been like for you? Yeah. yeah I mean, a, a big thing for me at school, I remember was like, I know I've listened to a ton of episodes and I feel like I was really at war with myself. You know, I, the criticism from the teachers wasn't as big of a deal as the, as the criticism that I gave myself. Like I, I never, uh, there was no self-validation at all. Like even when I did something well, I never told myself that. There was always something wrong. And I think that has been a big part of my adulthood um, is just learning to give myself a gold star and to self-validate. And then also to learn to understand um, permission to get feedback. And, you know, I think that was something that was always a little challenging at theater school too, was, you know, I, like, you know, the, the lab director that I mentioned earlier at EST, who would say like, what do you need to know in order to move forward? So often at school, we weren't in control of the feedback that we got. So I think sometimes that was really challenging for me when I was like, I'm not ready for all of this, or I don't need to know that. Why are you telling me that now? Or, you know, we couldn't, I couldn't control any of that. And maybe I needed to let go of that. And I did have a little bit of a um, habit and, uh, and a little reputation for walking out of class. Really? Uh, yeah. And it was, it was something I had to address and something a lot of teachers talked to me about. And I mean, often it was because I was bored or I just like needed a break or I was like, I didn't want to like watch someone or whatever it was. And Which I think is I really was... bold. Like, what the fuck, man? I wish <laughs> the one time I did that, I, I like got in big trouble for it. And like, but like, whatever the reason is, you were on some level trying to take care of yourself, right? And so good for you. Like, fuck that. Yeah. I don't know. I, I like it. I probably would be like, oh, that's awesome. And secretly I'm like, oh, the audacity, the amazing audacity of Joe to, to walk out. And inside I'm probably like, I wish I could do that. But anyway, so. What, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, to me it was, it was self-care in a way. And that was before we knew anything about that. And, you know, I, when I think of like what I was going through at the time too, it was, it was such an emotional time for me, like on, for so many reasons. And, you know, like, uh, you know, being away from home and coming out of the closet and like, uh, you know, like all the money struggles I had. And like, I, it, you know, it just kind of gave me, I was just learning how to, to take care of myself. And then on top of all those things, like studying drama, like, okay, this is the perfect time to study drama now, <laughs> you know, and even like, doing all the things that we did, like, especially the movement stuff always had um, like a kind of profound effect on me because we're like retraining how to the nervous system yeah. in that sense and like freeing our natural voice and doing all these things. So 
I was really emotional, like the first two years a lot. And I would just leave to kind of like collect my thoughts and not like have a major breakdown in class or to about something that, yeah. To modulate, right? Because that's what you, what you definitely have no control over is modulating the flow of feedback. Cause it's not just feedback from your teachers. We're getting feedback from our peers. And sometimes you'd get feedback from peers that you didn't really respect them. So you were like, I'm not sure what to, you know, I'm not sure what well, to make of this. What's becoming clear is that based on what you experienced after that with the lab is that we needed a feedback class. Like we needed a literal class of how to give and receive feedback at the theater school would have been fucking phenomenal. Oh my God. I know it wasn't until years later when I was in Neo that we learned um, the, the show was on, I think East 4th street and right next to was New York theater workshop. And they do the Liz Lerman uh -huh. like, feedback method, which I love. And I'm like, Oh my God, this, right. that was really a big changing point for me. Cause then it, just to follow that structure is brilliant. Like just start with what you were struck by. I don't need your opinion right away on how, what to change. Like, just tell me what you were struck by. What moments did you enjoy? What, you know, what questions do you have? And then, or asking questions yourself. And I mean, maybe the school does that now, but I think that was really, that was really big for me, I, for any artist, whether you're a dancer. It doesn't or, matter whether you're yeah. a child getting feedback from your parent or a, a spouse getting feedback from your other spouse or whatever. It, it, it works in all levels. And I think that what it does though, is disrupts the hierarchy of the power in an institution. And so nobody likes that. I mean, really, like mm -hmm. teachers need to feel like they're in control, right? Instead of what struck me, let's stay curious, let's stay open. That's not how conservatories are made. Like that's not the whole goal of them. And then maybe I hope they're changing, but like, yeah. Oh, I just love that you yeah. had that experience after school with both the 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 work in New York, um, and, and the the ensemble work you did, and the um, neo futurists. Um, sort of, it sounds like it sh really shaped your work moving forward as an artist, right? Yeah, I mean, it was really, I have to say, I mean, after that moment of being a neo-futurist, I was like, I don't think I can play a character ever again. I don't really know it can happen because I, it just didn't, I, it really changed the dynamic I had with an audience. And I, I guess I didn't want to go back to what it was before. Also being a neo, I had to let go of really all the things I had learned at school in a sense. I mean, all I could really use was like maybe some of the voice and speech work we had done, but I, I mean, um, yeah, it really kind of shifted things for me, but being in that ensemble was great. Cause I, I, you know, we really learn how you really need to learn how to give and take and collaborate too, and, but also be an advocate for your own work. Um, because every week, you know, you had to kind of bring in something and you had to pitch it. You had to sell it to the five or six people who were deciding what was in the show that week. Um, so it was, I think it's an experience that I, I, they do workshops, but like, I think everyone should do a workshop in that way. Cause it, the show itself is living newspaper. So you have to think of like, what is relevant right now? What's relevant to this audience? What's relevant in this moment? You know, um, and how can I bring that on stage? So wait, so you had an interest young in musical theater, but did you follow that? Have you remained interested in musical theater? No, you know what? Um, I know you all have talked about the brochure. 
Um, and yes. Three. <laughs> so I completely read the brochure wrong um, <gasps> when uh, I chose DePaul. Well, a couple of things. I had, um, for musical theater, I, I wanted to get a BFA in musical theater, and there aren't a lot of schools that offer that. So I, you know, when I didn't get into some NYU, I was like, okay, well, what other school? So I had to be flexible with that. Um, but the brochure, I remember for DePaul, the last um, year we took ensemble class, and I actually thought that that meant that we were in a theater company. So I not only thought that, but like after you graduated, you're part of an ensemble theater company. Oh, that would have been great. So I told everyone, I'm like, I'm going to DePaul and then I'm in a theater company. And then I thought that like, that was one crazy thing. And then also the movement stuff, which was, I actually really loved like all the movement stuff we did. Like I'm a big, like I'm, I was a big fan of movement and music. Like that was my jam um at school so i thought i was going to be getting some dancing training there uh but i kind of i did let it go certainly like as the were years you in any musicals at depaul were you in any i wasn't and i really wanted to be i we did like peter pan one year yeah, and yeah. Uh... oh yeah we did <laughs> were you in that no, but oh, okay. Erica was. Remember Erica's oh, yes. whole thing with Susan Lee? And yes. she talks about it on the podcast. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. I, heard the, I heard the one, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I didn't do any musical theater stuff. Um, I did love all the, we learned like period dance, which I was a big fan of. Like that was. Me too. I, I really you know why that. I liked it? Because <laughs> there was a fucking structure and it was like slow mm-hmm. and like, there was a way to do it. I remember the Elizabethan situation maybe, or like, yeah, I, I don't yeah. remember. There was like this dance with Romeo and Juliet situation. Mm-hmm. And I loved that. I felt like there were actual steps we could take. There was a pacing to it. And you, it just felt and you knew if you got it or not, right? Like it was, it wasn't nebulous. Like you either understood how to do it or you didn't. Yeah, I thought it was like I love the ritual of it, and it was it was it was great to learn about history in that way too. And I I liked all the Laban stuff that we did with with Betsy. I thought that is was... that the buoyancy and the this and the that with all I the balls. Felt... Yeah, I loved all of that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it yeah. was you know it was physically challenging too. We uh, I remember that thing we did with it was called like chaos where you had yes. to like go crazy and i don't remember you know, that like, chaos yeah oh, it, it was crazy and <laughs> i remember i got such a stiff neck that i had to go to the emergency room <laughs> oh my god <laughs> because we were going crazy and and the next day i was like i think i broke my neck but i didn't break my oh, neck no. That's what so i had to like, go to the and they were like what did you do were you like at a headbanging concert like they thought i was <laughs> I was like, no, it's theater school. Uh, They're probably like, oh, we got another one. We got another theater school. We got another chaos. (laughs) Chaos lady. I was like, I can't move. Yeah. Okay, but wait. So tell us about Susan Laurie Parks, 365 plays and 365 days. Yeah, so that was, um, we the neos were given a handful of of days for or scripts from that and then as an ensemble we were tasked with like interpreting it in any way that we wanted to so it was cool to like do a show at the public and um i remember we did one piece called fed x to my ex where we had like we used actual fedex boxes like maybe 
like 50 or 60 of them. And we, we had um, letters on them or words and like kind of configured them to, to give messages out to the audience on these boxes. So I love that experience just because we, as an ensemble, get to like to celebrate this playwright with other like theater companies from, I think it was from, from all over the place. Yeah. Um, and it felt again, like another professional experience, something that we didn't really get a chance to do because the show that we did on a weekly basis was like on East fourth street at like 11 o'clock at night, you know, and this was more of a, like, you know, a different audience for us, um, which was interesting. When did, when did you stop working with, is it like once a Neo, always a Neo? Can you stop back in and do stuff or like, how does it work? You can. Yeah. So the, I was uh, like a regularly scheduled Neo for about two years or so. And then um, I jumped in to do the show at other times. And uh, like we did a pride show that I would do often, or I would come in and do a run. Um, and then we also had primetime shows. So I was involved in like two or three primetime shows as either a performer or assistant director or a collaborator in some way. And I did that up until um, I did some marketing for the company. I did that up until I moved to LA. And even my first year in LA, I did a project at Hero Arts Center with my one of my theater heroes, Chuck Mee, um, that I went yeah. back um, to 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 see. So, but yeah, when I moved here, I kind of just decided to let let that let it go. go. <laughs> I feel like yeah. that's the theme, right? <laughs> yeah. There are always themes that emerge with people's <laughs> lives when they come on the show. So for yeah. you, the, some is stop and starting, like Ed Ryan's is being interrupted, and yours is like letting things go. So when mm-hmm. did you arrive in LA? Uh, I moved here, it's been five years, so 2017 okay. or so. And, you know, I finally feel like now I'm kind of getting settled. I mean, I go back to New York a lot just to hang out and spend time there. And I work remotely, so I'm able to, like, go there and, like, work for a couple weeks. Um, I've learned not to stay too, too long because last summer I was there for six weeks. And I was like, <gasps> uh, I feel like I'm in yeah. my old life. Right, um, right. How do you satisfy if you still have a craving for a performance? How do you satisfy? Because now you you have your own company, um, mm-hmm. you're you know self employed, which is awesome. How do you do? You have to contend with a need to perform, and how do you? Yeah, well, recently, I mean, I've been working on these personal essays, um, or been working on some personal essays that I've been, you know just kind of mulling over for a while. And then recently I did audio recordings of them, which kind of brought back a lot of things for me. I've never done that before. So um, I like it though. And I kind of got the idea. I went to see David Sedaris like perform Mm -hmm. and I was like, this guy has like a really good idea. Like he writes these essays, he performs them in front of an audience. He gets feedback from the audience, makes adjustments and he is in sense like in a sense a performer and a writer and i love yeah. i love that model and i think you know other people do it too and i think that's something that perhaps i'm aspiring to next is to be able to like write these essays and like share my stories in it doesn't have to be like just reading it in front of an audience but maybe in an interesting way so in a, it's kind of almost neo futurist in a way cuz that's what we did during that show but i guess it's not 
you know, there's no race against the clock there. <laughs> and it's no. not, you know, and it's right. longer and than I, two minutes. Yeah. And I think that there's, it's interesting, like there's different, oh, what I'm noticing about your story is like the, the, your art has sort of just taken, and maybe this is the way it always is for all of us, but different incarnations at different times. And now is the time where you're exploring like, audio and storytelling in a different way but yeah you're a storyteller through and through and i think you're 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 a content strat is that what you have a con like a what what do you do tell us what you do because i i saw your website and i want to know what that means yeah so i if someone asks i say i'm a marketing consultant and manager um and then if someone asks well what does that mean and i say oh okay well i'm a content strategist so i help um service-based businesses develop content to generate leads and to promote their services. So what that, how, well, how, how did I... you get into it? No, no. How did you get into this? Because I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm selfishly like, this sounds fantastic. Like I'm always curious how artists then go into a field where they can get paid to do cool shit. That's, that's yeah. It. Yeah. Well, it started with the news because as part of the, um, as an ensemble member, we had to do some administrative tasks. So I was on the marketing committee, which basically meant like handing out postcards and maybe some promotional events. And then um, I, and that's what, that's when like Facebook first came out, we were like promoting our show on Facebook. And then I went actually back to school. I went to FIT and I studied marketing um, oh, and advertising. Shit. Yeah. And then I even like, I in, in, interned at Esquire magazine and like, I thought I wanted to work at a magazine, but I, then I realized I wanted to work at a magazine, like in the eighties, like I wanted yeah, to work yeah. at like <laughs> interview or something. Right. Like at like, Not... at like sassy. At like sassy. Oh, I love sassy. I remember that. Yeah. Um, so then after that experience, then I, yeah, I graduated the year, the, like the market crashed in like 2009. And then I started freelancing. And then my first gig was like at a restaurant, like creating content for them. And then I started doing nonprofit arts management work, like working at theaters. And then I went back to doing freelance stuff. So I, to me though, all the stuff that I, I consult with folks, um, like all the information I give them is based on all the stuff I learned at this company called uh, organization called art New York. It's Alliance of resident theaters and it's all audience development work. Like how do you develop an audience? How do you, you know, uh, what tactics do you use to reach like a core connected and unconnected audience? So I use that kind of that theatrical, like, um, you know, marketing framework with, with my, non-theater clients you know Hmm, it works really well yeah and then why do you think people hire you like what do you bring i'm like this is turning into like a business development meeting (laughs) what 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 do you have that people like i guess is what i'm yeah i think a couple things one i definitely have a new york sensibility like i work with a lot of urgency um which a lot of people in la i think really appreciate (laughs) and then uh you know, also that I have a strat, like a, an approach to the work. And, you know, one of the things I value is like the idea of good, better, best, like, Oh wait, say more. Yeah. So with, with, I say this a lot to my clients, I even have a little like sticker collection I made that is like a little sticker on it, but good, better, best is just a way of like, again, not to let perfect be the enemy of good to like say, Hey, we have 
this thing that needs to happen? What is the good version of this look like? What can we, what can we make happen today or tomorrow? What is the best version of this look like? Can we start with good and then work towards best? So that's one kind of a, approach that I have. Um, and then, uh, I'm also, I'm a strategist, but I'm also a creator. So, so often, people will hire a strategist and then they're like, okay, do the things I say. And then there's no one to do it. And then, so I usually say, okay, well, here's the strategy. And this is, this is the, these are the deliverables. This is the calendar I've made to like, to, to send it out to the world. And I think a lot of people like that. I actually do the work and then I create the strategy for it as well. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So what the thing that you said about, I, never want to play a character again that keeps that keeps running through through my head and to me how what that translates to is maybe something also that i feel which is the real the stuff that's really interesting is about i mean i guess it's solipsistic it's about it's about me and it's about my experience and how i'm how i'm encountering the world and, that, and that's where i'm best able to like get give my juice did you have that at, at theater school were you were you more in the character phase of like let me just try on these personas and see who I am try to figure out who I am from that yeah I mean definitely all the roles that I got cast in were like characters like I my I had the you know I was kind of the character actor I was told that too and you know I had moments in school where you know, and I love Phyllis. Like Phyllis was such a nurturing, like presence for me at, at the time. And I think like she really encouraged me to have the creativity to see myself in a different way, um, which I think is more important than anything. Um, oh God, I forgot the question. Were you? No, it's, <laughs> well, it's like it's like yeah. did you like you know you we talk now about yeah. I think this is what I'm getting from what Gina said was like we talk now about how we are like, there's no more care. We don't want to play characters anymore because mm-hmm. like our, uh, our experience and especially what you're saying, like our, our experience with an audience is like authentic when we're being a part of ourselves. So like at the theater school, did you feel like you were just, we were just had to like play, put something on. We, could you not, did you feel like you could be yourself at the theater school, I guess, or no way? Or... Uh, you, like in performance or in, in the yeah, classroom? Yeah, both, both. Yeah. In the classroom, I definitely felt like I was able to, I I was pretty bold, I think, in, in class and a little yeah. punky at times. And I remember once when we were doing Shakespeare scenes, um, I was like, I want to play Juliet. And actually, um, you all did a, a session with Noelle, who I reconnected with after like 20 years. Aww. And now we chat on the phone and stuff. So grateful, so grateful for that. But, uh, you know, I think, um, and they did allow that to happen. I even remember in Dr. Um, Bella's class, like we had to do the scene from the glass menagerie. And then it did the scene I also did with Noel, where I was like, let's make a giant menagerie of glass and that, that'll be our set. And so we like put all these chairs on top of each other and tables wow. and, and, uh, and I remember, so I think there was some freedom to, to do that in performance, maybe not so much because I think I didn't understand, I was learning what the role was between director and actor. And I wanted to be more of a collaborator. And that's always yeah. when I butt, you know, butt heads with people, especially 
maybe the student directors where I was like, I don't understand why I'm wearing a turtleneck. Like, why do I have, like, I once played this like philosopher and he was a real punk. And I was like, he should be in like a punk outfit, but I looked like Steve Jobs, you know, and I, I you know, I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I was, remember you in a turtleneck. Yeah. It was a play called life during wartime. Yes. Yeah. And I, so I remember like having those moments where I, and this is exactly what the Neos do is like, they, they throw ideas, you know, back and forth with each other, collaborate. And I just realized that I wasn't going to be able to do that if I had a traditional, uh, if I was a traditional actor. I mean, maybe in some instances that works where you can be have those conversations. But so often I think it's not the case. Yeah, yeah. no. And I, I'm so grateful you found some outlets for your creativity that really spoke to you um, because I feel like a lot of people we talk to myself included there's like this gap of not finding your place for like 20 years and then finally finding it and realizing oh I, I found it but I'm now 45 years old and have student debt or whatever so you and, and and you found a place it sounds like an artistic home for a while which is so great that I feel like a lot of us never find right I don't feel like I ever found an artistic home as a theater performer, particularly. So, um, which is, brings me back to the brochure, which is what you wanted when you <laughs> saw that brochure was like a place to belong post-graduation was an ensemble to belong to. And you found it. I mean, you didn't yeah. find it at DePaul in the brochure, but you found it in New York, which is fantastic. Um, and then I guess, do you ever have dreams of doing it again? Like, do you, in LA, like, do you have dreams of starting like a Neos in LA? Yeah, I don't think I would do that. But I have to say there were some projects that I've done over the years. Um, do you all remember Stephanie Bedoni, Stephanie Shatarian? Yeah, I just saw her. Oh, yeah. yes, yes. Now the name, there's two different names. Now yes. I get the name. The yeah. name is familiar. Yeah, right. okay. I just saw her this this past weekend because I was in San Francisco. And like she did this project uh, that a bunch of DePaul people did. It was a sock puppet version of Showgirls that was in <gasps> Chicago and New York. I think they even brought it to LA. Oh my God. And like Jason Denizak was in it. <gasps> okay. And I was in it and Kelly um, Holden, who's... Um, Married to John. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I love doing stuff like that. I just love like taking a piece of something and having like some funny late night parody of, of something. Like, I really enjoy that work where it's, it's a situation where people are like drinking beer and uh -huh. like there's some audience engagement or interaction. So I think if there was a project like that, I think I would kind of jump in. And I, I, I thought of that, particular um show because it was such a fun experience with other DePaul people well one of the things I wanted to say to you all too was like I love that you're doing this because I feel like first it's like no easy feat to put together a podcast but you are both like creating and helping cultivate community that I think I missed because I, I graduated from school and I felt like everyone disappeared yes, and then totally. I there was no uh social structure for me to um 
to to gravitate towards there's like so, no through line there's yeah. no through line it's like you graduate and some people get famous some don't and fuck the rest and bye bye <laughs> you know what i mean like that's how it is and it's like what? yeah and then we all live vicariously through the people that get famous it's the weirdest thing yeah yeah when i i think there was there i know there are conversation people like especially being in la like I actually haven't met anyone met up with anyone from depaul since i've been here um I mean, I connect with, you know, there's my close friends up from school that I, I've stayed connected with for a couple of years. But, um, you know, I think that's what I think was so hard for me when I left school was not having that community there. And then when I moved to New York, I actually reached out to all the DePaul people who were in New York and they became like good friends, you know, which was which was nice. But there were only a few of us there. I think the thing is, like, people think that we are doing a podcast that sort of um, celebrates the awesomeness of the theater school. And um, also I think people just even hear the word theater school and flip out that went there. And I can end it with saying that I was telling Gina that I recently saw Rick Murphy in the Aldi in Altadena. We can leave this part in because this is, and I ran away. Like I, well, first of all, he didn't have a mask on. I did. I was like, so it was weird to me. I thought he was sick. Someone told me he was sick. So when I saw him healthy and like bouncing around the Aldi, I was like, what is fucking happening? And also, should I say something? And he wasn't wearing a mask. It was like this weird thing. And I ultimately left. Like I did not say shit. I was, and I think, look, I think it was a lot of things, but I think the underlying thing is like, I don't know if he'll remember me and I don't want to deal with the shame of not being remembered and I don't want to get into all that with him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Unless it's in a container where he's on the show, where I know we're in control of the whole conversation. <laughs> <Right>. really. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think sometimes the challenge is when you see someone who used to do like theater with back in the day, the inevitable question that comes up is like, what are you what doing? Are you, doing? Right. you know, which is always fraught. Which I just say, I say two things. I say two things. I'm doing porn and murder. <laughs> Oh my God, I'm stealing that. I'm stealing that. If you liked what you heard today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you!